We want things that are coming into our minds to be simple, to be easy, to be fluent. But when we're in charge of sending, when we're the ones speaking or writing or presenting, we have a really hard time doing that because internally we're battling stuff. What if the secret to standing out in a world oversaturated with messages was embracing the power of simplicity? Today on Seek Go Create, we meet Ben Gutman, a marketing entrepreneur, educator, and author who's made it his life's work to unravel the complexities of human decision-making. Ben has elevated brands such as giants like the NFL and others with the belief that the simplest ideas resonate the loudest. As he releases his latest insights in a new book, Simply Put, we're here to dive into the philosophy that less is truly more, something that we love to discuss here. Ben, welcome to Seek Go Create. Thanks for having me, Tim. Great to be here. Glad you're here too. Ben, let me kick off with my icebreaker question. Someone asked you what you do. What do you tell them? That's a harder question uh, than it sounds, right? For a long time, the answer was that I ran a marketing agency called Digital Natives Group. We had a, a lot of fun. You mentioned a couple of the clients there and from the NFL to I Love New York to Comcast. And it was what a journey. I started in, in an old professor's basement working with a local ice cream shop and eventually punched our way up to these bigger clients, got an office, got employees, all this, all the trappings. And then one day we decided to sell the business. And so that was about a year ago, almost two years ago. And it was, that was a journey in and of itself, the sale process. But since then I've helped offboard that business. I've done a number of different kinds of consulting projects. I've done some speaking, I've done some teaching. And what we're talking about a little bit today is I just wrote my first book, simply put why clear messages win and how to design them. And I want to talk, I want to do a deep dive into the book later, but I, the reason I told you when we started, one of the reasons I was attracted to your message was the message of simplicity. And so like the big picture question I want to ask is, has that always been something that's been important to you? Or is that a recent revelation that simplicity is important in the world we're in today? It's been a little bit of both. In my experience working with clients, oftentimes I would come in and they would, I would ask them, okay, so like, what do you, what do you do? And what are you selling? What's your product or service or idea? And they would have the hardest time articulating that things that people worked all day, every day on, they'd have a hard time. And so I would sit there and I would just, I would be, I use this term in the book later on, an enlightened idiot, which is like, what do you mean? What do you mean by this? And eventually being able to reframe what they are saying or trying to say in something that is clear and to the point that often ended up being like one of our like superpowers a little bit in some of the work that we did. And so later on, after I sold the business, you start to think a little bit, that part of your brain rather, uh, it doesn't turn off. Like you, you don't have to work for the clients anymore, but the like problem solving that you did for them is still the kind of, is still running in the back of your head all the time. And so you're questioning, well, why do some things work and other things don't? Why are some messages heard and understood and made use of when others fall flat? And that's what led to the research that ended up leading to the book. And as it turned out, the answer was simple. And so that was how we 
put them together. So it was a little bit before that was the inkling to this, but then it was only when I really started interrogating why does some marketing work? Why does some emails or proposals or presentations, why are they effective and other ones aren't? That's when I began to identify it with a little bit more concreteness around it. Have you always been one that looked at things that may be complicated, complex? I know in the book, you break down the difference between complexity and complicating, but have you been one that could look at things that were like, there's a lot going on here and narrow down. The reason why I bring it up is that I, I do believe that's one of my superpowers is when I go in and work with organizations as a coach, I can kind of, I don't even see all the clutter and things, but I'm trying to narrow down on that one thing that can have an impact or can make a change. Oh, and yeah. it sounds like, have you always been that way? Uh, in, in many ways, it sounds like we're cut from the same cloth in, in terms of that, where that sometimes it's like, you just, you talk to somebody and they have such a, they, they have such a block about something. And then you realize it's really just X or it's Y or it's Z. And it's this one tiny piece that you can see from the outside. And, and that's actually what I looked at the research. That is one of the, the ways which people uh, can get simple is by, by taking that outsider perspective. Um, but that is definitely something that would always be present in stuff I did either at work or volunteer and community stuff that I've done or stuff in school would always be present of saying, okay, let's, this is what matters and this is what doesn't and focus on what does. I think you said you were married. The only thing I've seen, and I've been married over 35 years, I'm not sure that works well in marriage relationships. Any thoughts on that real quick tips before we tell people to all of a sudden go and tell people, by the way, here's what's really important and what's not. Any thoughts come to mind? Oh boy. Yeah. I've been, I've married a little bit less than 35 years, but the, I, I think you're right. I think you, and any of these things that you, you look at from a business book, if you ever try to apply them to, to a marriage, you're just going to fail because it's completely different of a, of an arena. And you're probably just going to get in trouble for trying to apply some of those things <laughs> in it. Yeah, I could just picture myself. Hey, listen, sweetie, I just want you to know that most of what you just said is not important. We need to really pare that back and let's get focused on a simple, yeah, no, I could just see that's not a good thing. That comes into, though, having that EQ of knowing when to use tools and when not to use tools. Let's, let's go into what I'd love to know in the research that you've done, especially in the background with working with huge brands. Obviously, our culture, we have gotten a lot of things that are coming in at us that may not be critical in our messaging or communicating or marketing or getting word out, just all of those things. How have we come to be where we're at? Why do we have such a, is it complicated or complex? What's the right word we should be using here? How has it gotten so convoluted? Maybe that's a word to use too. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I do semantically break down the difference between complexity and complication. Complex is when something has a lot of pieces and they're interconnected in a lot of intricate ways. And that's often a benign state of nature, right? Like things like international diplomacy is complex. The human eyeball is complex. Uh, but complicated is when something is complex, but really could be simple. It's something that's artificially com created complexity. 
complicate is a verb, right? You know, so you can complicate something and make it more difficult than it has to be. So while international diplomacy is complex, like your bad self-assembly furniture instructions, those are complicated, right? And so the goal, there's no way we will put up of complexity when it's worth it, but we will not put up with complicated when something something isn't a motivating factor for us. If we can avoid, if we can pull things towards the simple side, we're going to match up a lot more with kind of what our psychology wants in terms of a messaging. But I'll back up to the other piece you said too, which is about how did we get here? It's not particularly insightful to say, it's obvious that we are in this environment that is louder and busier and, and more distracting than ever, right? We, the average American spends 13 hours a day consuming some form of media. It's a crazy amount of, of messaging, both stuff we seek out and stuff that's pushed towards us that is just bombarding our brains all the time. And what happens is our kind of natural me you know, defense mechanisms kick in, which is to say, okay, there's lots of bits of stimuli that are out in the world. Um, a lot of them are going to hit our senses, but most of them are going to be thrown away immediately. We grew up as a species in this environment where a lot of things wanted to eat us. And we're looking around and we're saying, okay, is that rustling of a, of a leaf over there or that branch that just snapped? Is that something that's important to us? If it is, then I start to pay attention to it and I can, and I can react to it. But if it's not, I quickly dispose of that stimulus and I move on to something else. And so what's happening now is we do the same thing, right? If I see, if there's an advertisement that pops up on, on a website that I'm on, there's something known as banner blindness, which has been documented for, for decades now, actually, where we don't even see it. We don't even see it. Like our eyes just immediately in, in a subconscious way, we recognize what looks like an ad and we say, this is not important to us. And we immediately dispose that uh, visible stimulus and we move on to other parts of the page. And so that's the kind of thing that's happening over. There's such a huge amount of stimulation and just noise that that the window which we get to communicate with anybody is incredibly small. It's a small, and it's a small little like sliver of a window that gets cracked open. And the more we can understand that as a communicator, the, and the more humble we can be as a communicator because of that, the, the better we're going to be at making the most of it. I think one of the things from my perspective, I just turned 60 years old a couple of days ago. So I'm looking back on a pre-digital. Thanks. On a pre-digital world and then moving into the early internet and I wasn't around when they were carving things on stone or anything like that. I know that some people are probably putting comments down in the video, but I, I think it's interesting that I still do have a perspective on pre-digital, whereas like my children, younger generation and all this, everything's been connected and that, you know, we had cookies and we were attached to things. And so anywhere you went, they knew it digitally. You had this digital trail. And I think some of that's changing because they're trying to break that up. But I think there was this reward for just more stuff. Let's just keep creating stuff. And the message that I'm getting from you is maybe there's too much stuff out there. Is that correct or incorrect? It's not really even just for me. If you look at the survey data, everybody says that they hate advertisements, that they don't want to see the ones that are the most distracting. If you look at the 
usage data of like meditation apps or download data of of ad blockers all these numbers point in the same direction right even the platforms themselves even google and apple have been who benefit the most from us using more of these these devices and these technologies uh, they have been on uh, rolling out software and features that enable us to restrict our, our usage on them so there is a general societal trend in terms of saying oh man this is like this is too much this, this is a lot of notifications the average person gets like 160 some odd emails a day and, and that seems actually kind of low for a lot of people if when I ask my students how much time they spend on their phones and then I ask them to actually go pull out their phones and show me the and, and yell out the data, the first number is already high. They think they're using it a lot. And then when they look at the data, that's even a higher number a lot of times about how much we're using our stuff. So it's just, it is a noisy, noisy world. And this is something, but the, here's the thing. We've also, we've been complaining about the ever quickening and, and loudening noise of the world for centuries. Actually, so this is something you can look back and you can find writings from people in the 1300s, the 1500s, 1800s that are complaining about, oh my God, like, there's so much, so many books these days and so many, and we can't, we can't read everything. And we have so many newspapers and we can't do it. Oh my God, there's radio. Oh my God, there's television. So it's not particularly unique. It is accelerating for sure, but we have always, we've always been in many ways, just tired of this a level of stimulus and it, it goes to show that again the, the idea of simplicity as our frame of reference for how we can interact in that environment as the our kind of guiding principle for it is something that that will work now and has worked for a long time yeah i agree with the history of it i was actually i was reading some scriptures the other day. i was reading the book of acts and there was this comment about the crowd getting all riled up when it was Paul that was arrested. I don't get into details there. And I actually underlined it. And I said, this is like a social media thing. This is like the crowd got all fired up because this guy that was coming out against their religion. And then it made a comment and it said, but the crowd was not even sure why they were there and why they were excited. I'm going, that sounds like today. That's exactly today's. Hey there. This is your host, Tim Winders, and I want to pause this interview for a minute and ask you a question. Are you feeling stuck? Maybe it's in your business, maybe it's in your leadership style, or maybe you just can't put your finger on it. Trust me, I've been there. I'm a faith-driven executive coach, and I can help you get unstuck. How? Well, I bring to the table not just over 30 years of experience, but also a unique blend of skills, like strategic thinking relationship building, and a dash of marketing wizardry. And if you are here, you know I'm not afraid to ask the tough questions. Don't believe I can help you grow? Just ask my clients that tripled their annual gross revenues in two years after coaching with me, or the clients that increased revenue 67% in just a year. So if you're ready to take the next step in your leadership journey, book a free discovery call with me at timwinders.com forward slash coaching. That's timwinders.com forward slash coaching. T-I-M-W-I-N-D-E-R-S.com forward slash coaching. Take a look at that page, scroll to the bottom, and you could book a time right on my calendar. Let's unlock your potential together. I look forward to speaking with you. Now, let's get back to Seek Go Create. So 
one thing that's interesting, and I'm just talking about this big topic of just simplicity, and then we'll dive into more some tips and techniques that, that you have in the book. But one of the things that I've noticed with myself is that I've been on a simplicity journey with everything in my life, not just messaging and things like that. Is, is that you or is this really just in the marketing realm or is this causing you to spill over into other things? What's been your journey, especially as you've gotten prepared and written the book and moved into mm -hmm. this and seeing how important it is for just the marketing world? Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a lifestyle minimalist. I, I don't think that like the Marie Kondo's of the world, I do reference her a few times because she actually, I, I do like her attitude on things, which is it should spark joy, right? Like what, what every item you own should serve a purpose to spark joy. And I think that attitude really actually translates when I talk about the more intangible aspects of simplicity in, in communication, in marketing. Does it spark joy? What's the, what's the translation of that? Does it, is it what, is it everything you need and only what you need, right? That, that's what we're talking about. It's not saying that every single word has to be cut in your email and your presentation should only have three slides. It's not saying that it's about saying, how do you, how do you create a piece of communication that has everything you need, but only what you need in it? So you can get rid of the things that are a distraction and focus on the things that are actually conveying the, the message, the, the core meaning of what you want to do. I, um, I've personally, I, even though I'm in marketing, I, I try to minimize the amount of marketing messaging that hits my brain at the same in my life. I try to put on ad blockers, like all the people I just quoted before. I try to unsubscribe from emails when I'm not enjoying the list. So it's been something that is also personal in addition to being something that's on the, the business side of things. The, the reason I bring it up is. I don't think minimalism is the right term for me. I've read there's a guy named Josh Becker that writes about that. And of course, the Marie Kondo, does this bring you joy? I don't necessarily think that way about things and stuff, but there's a book called by Greg McEwen called Essentialism. And that word seems to resonate with me a lot is what is essential for me to do what I need to do? And it, it's fascinating that you bring it up. I've actually a couple of months ago, took all of my subscription emails and I rolled them up. I think it's an app called Unroll Me. I don't know much about them. I'm not necessarily promoting them. And so I'll wake up in the morning and I really have no emails in my inbox because they're all subscriptions. Now, if, if you had been, if you had sent me an email before we recorded here, I would have seen that, but it's amazing how few I get that are personal. I'm on subscriptions and they roll it up and I get it later in the day and I've gotten to where I look through them and I don't do anything with them anymore. So I've like freed up almost an hour of my day just by, and I've got no notification. I've never had notifications on my phone. I don't like things pinging and buzzing and all that, but mm -hmm. I do want to say here, I want to acknowledge the irony that we're talking about simplicity and less while we're recording a one hour conversation that's going to be on YouTube and put all over the socials <laughs> and podcast and that you wrote a book called simply put, that's I think a 200 and something page book. I do because someone is going to say, but they're talking about simplicity, man. I've got an hour. I've got to listen in on because it takes effort, right? This is something that you have to go against the grain to think this way. Correct. 
Oh, yeah. I actually, I think that's like the first paragraph on page one there, which is say, look, I understand the irony here. It's a 208 page book about how to say things simply. It seems like I didn't take my own advice. Uh, and what I always say is if it's enough to hear that simple messages are more effective than complicated ones, then great. Like you don't need the rest of the book. You can, you don't have to buy it. You don't have to read it. You don't have to make it turn off the show. But if you're interested in the kind of why of that or of the how behind connecting those pieces, that is surprisingly deep. And that is something that will take those other 200 and some hot pages to, to tell that story. I joke a little bit, and we were talking about this before, that this is certainly a book that you should judge by its cover, right? It, if the title and the subtitle, the design and the back cover copy, if that stuff doesn't clearly explain what's in it for you, then you know what? I didn't do my job. And so you should, and you should put it aside and do something else. But the goal is, uh, to not just give platitudes, but give people the real understanding about how to put this type of, this type of practice into action. Yeah, I think that's good. And I want us to go into that more in depth here in just a few minutes, but before we leave your background and history and We've got probably leader types, some people in the faith world, some people in business world, entrepreneurs and all that. I think it would be kind of a poor host of me if I didn't ask a few other learning points, tips, things that you gained from your marketing agency, things that you learned, things that you would never do again, or things that, boy, I really learned this outside of the simplicity message. We're about to really go into that even more. Working with the NFL, I love New York. Those are some big ones. You know, local ice cream shops, which could be more exciting than those other two, by the way. Just, I just <laughs> want to put that out there. What can you share just that might just be good ideas, good tips that, that we all need to know? Well, I'll tell you that this is a tip and also a riff on that, which is well, something like the local ice cream shop can be a harder client than the National Football League, right? Like it is, that's kind of actually a, a big lesson when I talk to my students in particular, a lot of them who are thinking about starting a business at some point is it is like 90% as hard to sell something for a hundred bucks as it is to sell something for a thousand dollars. And that applies for a widget. And that also applies for professional services to the work of making that connection, convincing somebody that you're legit and developing kind of a scope of services and, and then executing on it. If I'm doing a website for somebody when we first started for a few thousand dollars, as opposed to something that was a, you know, hundred thousand plus dollar project later on as we grew, they're not super different in terms of the technical work that goes into the end process. What is different in so, product, what is different is the process that gets us there. It is the discovery and the planning and the reliability that we have and our expertise and our insight. All that stuff is what people pay for. And that's the big difference is a lot of people get stuck thinking about, well, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who, who couldn't believe ever that we charged 30 or $40,000 for relatively, that wasn't our biggest project to do a 30 or $40,000 website. They wouldn't believe it couldn't, how, they're like, how do you justify that in an age where I can go get somebody to do it for a couple grand? on fiber. I was like, go ahead and do of them. And honestly, if, if you're really good at your own stuff and you want to babysit them, like the end product is not going to be 10 times better. 
the, the people that are hiring us to do 30 or 40 or 50 or $100,000 projects are doing that because they want somebody who is a professional who they can, they have a process, they can, they can call on them to fix things. They don't have, they have somebody to uh, maintain stuff later on. They have somebody who asks the right questions. They know people who can solve this problem. They're, we're, they're charging for all, they're, they're paying for all of that. They're not paying for the end process. And so that's one of the parts of value. On the other kind of aspect of that though, is if you are dealing with that ice cream shop and they are going to pay you $1,000 for something or $2,000, that is money that is either going to you or is like their next vacation. And if you're dealing with the NFL or I live in New York or Comcast or any of these other big brands, the $100,000 they're paying you is just a lie. It's a budget item. It's part of their marketing budget. It's nobody, it's no skin off anybody's back. It's not somebody's bonus that they didn't get to take. And so there's a, there's this kind of healthy remove that allows for investment instead of thinking of it as just an expense. Well, uh, this is a little bit of a trick question and you may not be able to answer, but looking back, who do you enjoy working with more? The big, we'll call them big operations where you may not be sitting down with the owners, you're with a group and things like that, or say smaller. The reason I bring that up while you're thinking is that I've worked in large corporations and I've also worked with some, what we call solopreneurs. And I have found the sweet spot that I like is where I could sit down with at least the leadership team and interact with them. The paychecks may be a little bit smaller, but the impact is different for me. Looking back, is there one or the other that you would go, you know what, if I had to do it again, I think I would work with blank. The trick question I know, but yeah. go ahead. That's why I'm here to ask these tough questions. I love it. I think that it's less so much kind of the scale as it is the individual. I, I, there are people we worked with who we like went to their weddings, the people who years later, I'm still, I still keep in touch with. There are people who, you know, when people on my team have had kind of family emergencies have called and checked in on them and it becomes this really warm kind of intimate relationship with some of the folks that we worked with. And that's who I try to seek out as much as I can. And to the extent where sometimes I will do something in, you know, my work now or before when we had the agency, we would do something. We have a good person for less money because it was just, it was worth it for the relationship. It was because they were almost our, you hesitate to use the word friend because that implies that, oh, you're doing it for your friend. But they became friends, a lot of the people. That, that, that's what I sought out more, what I would what I'd recommend any, anybody seeking out is don't work with assholes, work with good people. Because if you work with jerks, you become a jerk eventually. You spend, you spend a lot of time with the people you work with, whether that's your colleagues, whether that's your clients or customers or service providers, you just spend a lot of time with them. And if that is time that's draining you and if they're being mean and they're trying to use their resources or powers or whatever for, for lack of a better term, evil, they're trying to make the world a, world a, a worse place. But you know what? Eventually you can't just say, hey, it's a paycheck and I'm getting out of there. At some point it becomes your responsibility as well. And so I, I'm proud mostly of the stuff that I, we were able to say no to. When I look back on this after we sold the business, I was like, I'm proud of a lot of the work that we did. but. I'm really proud of the moments where somebody who we thought was an unsavory character came knocking on our door. And even though you know, it's a small business, you can always use the, the, the check. We said, hey, get out of here. We don't want to work with this person. We don't want to work with this brand. And that is something that 
that I always try to advise people to to maintain is that kind of like for the do work with people and with brands and organizations that you can feel morally comfortable doing. I I love the moral because it sounds like you're a better guy than I am. There were I, I actually had two situations pop into my head while you were saying that that I know that I added a zero or two on the end of the proposal because I knew it was going to be a hassle. I knew it was going to be tough. And my thought was, if they pay me enough, it's worth it. So you're obviously much more virtuous. And did you ever do that? You never did that, did you? Well, you know, listen, it's easy to, to sound like <laughs> that. But at the time, you still think about it a tiny bit because you're like, hey, payroll's coming up again. And this other client is late on their paycheck, on their check. And so you it's a debate. Some Sometimes it's so odorous that you immediately, you can say no, but there's plenty of stuff in the gray area that that sometimes you go, oh man, like we could do it, but like not put it in our portfolio and think about it for a second, then you sleep on it and you're like, get, it, it, it's not something you want to do. But yeah, sometimes people would say, I had a couple of partners and my partners would say, you know, every, again, everybody goes through these kind of highs and lows where you, you, you have more money coming in or less money coming in. And somebody can at, say, what if we added that zero, as you're saying, and then we didn't have to tell anybody about it. I'm like, I don't want to have to do work. I don't want to tell anybody about Right. So ultimately we always came down to the side of saying, let's do the thing that protects us morally and also selfishly protects our brand. Is that not being a company that works with those type of characters? I think something going back to that word I used earlier, essentialism, something that we all go through is coming to terms with what's important to us in life. And it sounds to me just from reading some of your stuff and seeing it sounds to me like teacher, educator someone who shares information is something that's core to you. At what point, and I, I didn't see this anywhere, so you could share the story. At what point did you move back to, I think it was your alma mater and start teaching and become a professor? And I don't know if that linked in with when you started writing the book and all that, but get, give a little bit of that mm -hmm. because to me, that's part of what the journey we go through in life is identifying, you know what? I kind of knew early on, I was a coach. I was supposed to coach. I, mm -hmm. I avoided it, but then I migrated back to it. So a professor, come on, that's unique. I've been doing it for a while now. I, I did it for, I started about 10 years ago, nine and nine and a half years ago. I started teaching at Baruch College, which is where I also went to school. And it was on a, like a whim. I was at, for lack, the abridged version of it, I was, I was at an alumni event. I saw the department chair at the time. And I basically said, your shit stinks about something. It was about like one of their digital marketing things because it was a new track they just had and they didn't have any like real good material for it because I guess, I guess spoke in somebody's class like the previous semester. And so I, they basically turn around and say, okay, why don't you do something about it? And I said, okay. And I put together this course and I've been teaching it now for, for this is my 19th semester. My 20th semester is coming up in the spring and I love it. It's like the best thing. It's so fun. I go, sometimes I have a very large class. I have like 70 or 80 students. Sometimes I have 20 students or so, depending on kind of what the, you know, what the semester is. And uh, I like them both. You get a lot of energy from the big group. You get really good relationships from the small groups. I will do it until they kick me out, until they stop letting me be there to talk about things. It, it's not something I do on a full-time basis. It's not something uh, that I probably would want to do on a full-time basis. But I've enjoyed it as I call it like my favorite hobby because 
It's the City University of New York. It's a public institution. You're not really making your money doing it. But if you're able to make a positive impact on somebody's life by being at the right place at the right time, and, and these students are seniors in college about to big, make the kind of biggest single change in their life, which is going from student to adult, basically. It, it's a weird honor to be there at that time and to try to try to nudge them in the right direction and, and to be there as a resource and to see them come into their, into their selves at that time. Cause the analogy I make at that moment for them every semester. And, and as we're talking, I think this is my next class I have for them or, or in two weeks is I tell this analogy of the escalator, which is if you're a five-year-old, 15-year-old, 20-year-old, at some point you're on an escalator. As long as you don't really screw up, you're going from grade one to two to three, and you're going to high school to college. And unless you jump off or get pushed off for the median person, you're just going to keep going. Spring semester, summer, fall semester, spring semester, summer, and it keeps on going up. And at some point where these students are right then is that the escalator stops and you have to figure out, you, you get off and it's your responsibility to figure out what it is that you want to do in your life. And if that's to make a job, to get a job, to join a cause, whatever it is, uh, I, I just try to, imp to impress upon them that like, this is an important moment and that there's more opportunity than they think there is. Cause a lot of folks think I just have to go continue on the next thing that looks like this escalator. But in reality, they can go out and they can do a, a ton of different things. And that's what I try to connect with as what, that's what I look at like my, like an unstated mission a little bit in, in the teaching is to talk about the, the, uh, incredible expanse of opportunity that's out there. So one of the things that kind of fascinated you mentioned 10 years, and I'm thinking back, I know where we are now recording in late 2023, go back 10 years, 2013, something like that. And I'm thinking about all that's happened. And then have you noticed any trends or things that excite you or concern you or bother you or anything about, I'm guessing most of them are young people. It's not, is if it's a city school, there's some adults older in there or most of them. There's a handful, but no, most of them are 20 or 21 years old that I'm, that I have. Yeah. Perfect. So just a couple, what are you observing? What's going on with that uh, generation that's coming along? I think the kids are all right. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I think that the, here, a few things, a few things. I'll tell you one broader piece is COVID was a complete just earthquake for this age cohort. The students that I had are seniors. That are, so they're usually in the last one or two semesters. The Three, two years that I was basically teaching remote, like one, and I think it was three semesters or maybe four that I had that were at least partially online. It was really tough. It was really tough for, because the class wasn't built for that. These students didn't sign up for this. People just weren't engaged. I'm, I wasn't teaching at hundred percent myself because I'm sitting here at the same computer that I just spent eight hours working on for my agency. And then at night, I have to just go stare at the computer again, looking at 40 gray boxes because nobody had their camera on because you can't, you could be, their policy was you couldn't even ask them to turn the camera on, uh, which I totally understand why it was because it was you know, chaotic times, but it just didn't lead to a good learning environment. So I think there was a couple semesters there where people really had 
a hard time uh, uh, absorbing the material. And then a couple semesters after people came back, and it's really it's only kind of this semester that it's fully that it feels like we're like ninety five percent back. There just wasn't as much energy and engagement in the classroom. And this is something I spoke to other people at my school, other people across across the country, would be that they're just I had to come like highly caffeinated. I'll put it that way. I had to come and bring a ton of energy every single night to get the same amount of response that I would get back on like my bad nights in previous years. Only now is it beginning to the students that I have now have had enough like normal life since the pandemic has tapered out that they're beginning to, to uh, kind of act the way they did a few years ago. So that's all to say, I wonder what's going to happen to this cohort as they progress through their careers. There's going to be a good kind of three or four or five years worth of students who at different points hit them in high school or college when they're in that pivotal maturity stage that I think it'll be, it, this will be a defining question for the next generation is what's going to happen to that. So that's the big piece. And again, I'm not, again, I'm part-time, I'm part-time adjunct. So this is not, this is not something that, you know, I did any sort of empirical research on. The other thing I will say, I did add a, I did add a, uh, uh, what's it called? A focus group class to my syllabus a couple of years ago, because I was curious. I would always talk to them informally, but I wanted to do it in a more formal way. I was curious about how do they use technology? How do they use social media? How do they use their phones, websites, everything else? And it's definitely changed a lot. Instagram stays very popular. TikTok obviously rose a lot. Snapchat's gone on this kind of wild ride. A lot of them have a little bit of anxiety about how much they use their devices now, as that I didn't see that same level of concern a few years ago. And I write up a blog post about this most semesters, and so I have a few of them to dig through. But it's, it is interesting now to see this is a generation that has Facebook but doesn't really use Facebook. Facebook's a utility to have. And when I was in college, like Facebook was the coolest thing on the planet, right? Like it was brand new at the time. So it, it's, a big, it's a big difference in terms of how social media is viewed. And I think that is a big defining aspect of their, technology, uh, their technological lives. Facebook is where old people like me hang out, I think is the way they yeah. perceive mm -hmm. that, which is probably pretty darn accurate if they're pegging that. One... One bridge question that I want to go from the teaching and students to back to the simplicity discussion is I, I want to bring up AI. I want to ask in, in this, I know this is general stuff. I know it's not necessarily expertise. So this is observational from you. What are you seeing the impact being of AI with maybe that generation? And then we'll start merging into how AI might be impacting this simply put message that you're attempting to get out to the world. So let's bridge with AI. How's that for a segue? Oh yeah. So AI is the most, I guess, it's, it, revolutionary seems like a big puffy word, but it's the piece of technology since the iPhone. And before that, it was the internet. And before that it was the personal computer, right? It is, it has every bit of a practical application that the hype around something like web three or crypto or, or metaverse had, but never materialized. I, I never was a huge believer in, in crypto and, and any of that kind of metaverse type stuff, just because I, I, as somebody who works in that space and I would use it and I'd always be, I would always be trying to figure out how to stay on these trends. 
I, I realized that a lot of that was hype and, and very little substance was there. AI is one of those things where there is a lot of hype, but there is still a very great deal amount of substance below. I'll put it this way. I don't ban the students from using it. I don't go out and encourage them to use it for things. I say, if you want to go use it to augment the stuff that you do, it's great. But using it to write a paper is not going to really help you because it's not going to fully understand things. It'll make a bunch of fluff. It'll make things that look like the right answer to something, but it doesn't actually understand the material behind it. So it's really good as a tool. If Grammarly is a great example of this, run your writing through that and say, okay, how can this improve your grammar, your spelling, your syntax, all these different pieces. But asking it to completely from whole cloth, write something is often at this moment, or as we're recording this in the fall of 2023, um, is not going to be the right answer for most applications. So look at it as uh, the, the best framing I've, I've heard about this has been look at AI, not as having an, in, like a super genius at your disposal, but as having an unlimited number of stupid people at your disposal. So I, and I think that's a great way of putting it is it, it can help you with things. It can help with, I have a paragraph and I need it to be two sentences, put it in there, ask it to shorten it for you and then tinker around a little bit and you have a really good answer. But if you're asking it to write that paragraph from scratch at this moment, that's not the best use of it. Is it messing with anybody in that education? I was thinking back to had AI been around when I was, you know, starting to write, I'm an engineer by training, but so we didn't really have to write anything. We didn't even have to know verbs, but I was thinking about what if AI had been around, are you, are you see, is it messing with their heads at all? A little bit. They've used a little bit of the image stuff and some of their presentations to me this, this past semester. I just saw this study or this survey, I think it was a Pew survey that it was like one in five U.S. teens have used chat GPT for their homework uh, at something. And so it, it, there are professors, there are teachers at the kind of the primary and secondary level who are very concerned about, about it. And I think there's some validity to say, you know what, if I, I want somebody to read The Great Gatsby and write a, some, an essay about it, if some kid comes back and just asks chat GPT to write an essay about The Great Gatsby, Okay, you're not really learning at that point. For me, my my class is not as theoretical. It's a practical, it's a marketing class. It's a lot of applied stuff. And so I say, if you can figure out how to use for the projects that I'm giving, if you can figure out how to use AI to to get there, well, that's actually going to replicate a lot of what what working in marketing is going to be. Because every marketer I know is trying to figure out how do you use AI for their own purposes. So I don't go out and ban it. But I think that, I think that it is something that if you rely on it too much, instead of developing your own understanding of kind of the world and of the subject you're talking about, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. So your book is simply put why clear messages win and how to design them. And I want to give a full disclosure here. I typically write out my introductions to uh, guest like I did at the beginning when I introduced you. However, Ben, what I did was, is I took what I wrote out and I put it through chat GPT and I said, I would like to make this simpler and more succinct. So now <laughs> someone's trying to think through what was the intro and it, and it actually did pretty good. I adjusted a couple words and I had to know what to ask it and all that, but I, I guess it, is it a tool that's going to help or hurt us with this simple message? that we're attempting oh, to funny. 
train people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna, you're thinking now. Wait, what did he say at the beginning? <laughs> well, it, it, it's fine. So um, I was just emailing with an old old client of mine who has habits of a podcast, and he was saying that what he did was he took the lessons in the book, he trained a AI like what, one of the new GPT custom ones that you can build, and he trained that on that, and he asked it to edit his email that he was sending out, like his newsletter. And the new, and he ran a test, he ran an AB test. And the one that his original one got X op click rates. And the one that he ran through the AI trained on the book got 50% more clicks. And I was like, well, that's pretty good. I'm, I love that data. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to keep an eye on that as you're putting it together. So simply put, so the whole, I've alluded to this a little bit in some of the stuff we talked about. The entire thesis here comes down to this idea of fluency. So fluent is a word that you and I know from normal life, right? You can be fluent in English or Spanish or Mandarin. You can be fluent in, in cooking or chess or, or whatever it is that you're passionate about. You can be fluent. It, where things are easy, things are fluent. The Latin root is from the word that means flowing, which is what it feels like. So that's how we understand. But if you ask a cognitive scientist about the word, fluency. That describes this whole suite of experiences that loosely translate to how easy it is to take something from out in the world, stick it in your head and make sense of it. And so the things that are easier to see, hear, and perceive in general, as well as things that are easier to process, all of those things that take less mental energy, we're more likely to buy them, to like them, to trust them, and all the good things that we want when we're informing or we're persuading or we're selling. The inverse is also true, which is that the things that take more work, the things that are harder for us to stick in our heads and make sense of, we don't like them, we don't buy them, we don't trust them. And that's not where we want to be, obviously. So there's this divide here where we want to be, we want things that are coming into our minds to be simple, to be easy, to be fluent. But when we're in charge of sending, when we're the ones speaking or writing or presenting, we have a really hard time doing that because internally we're battling stuff like an additive bias, which we're more likely to add than subtract when we're presented with a, an option to change something. As well as externally, we're being pressured by our bosses, by the systems that we're in, by the media, whatever it is, to have more and more, right? You, you get credit for more. You don't really get credit for less in many uh, arenas. So there's internal and external kind of uh, forces that are pulling us in the opposite direction. So there's this gap. We want things one way. We want things to be simple, but we are built to send things another way. And so how do you bridge that gap? And that's what I try to answer with uh, these different design principles that that kind of make up the second half of the book. I was just actually just looking through. I actually was not, I usually am able to preview books prior to conversations, but I figured, Hey, it's a book on simplicity. I could, no, I, I needed to have read this and I recommend people get this. I'm looking at the, the index right now. One of the things I've always said is a confused mind does nothing. I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems like it should be true. Maybe that's the case. And like we were talking about earlier, we built up this, we've just added to, added to, I was even thinking about some copywriter training that I went through. I don't really consider myself a copywriter or a marketing person, but I've done parts of it for some of my companies. 
And I, I was just thinking about one of the phrases they taught was, and in addition to that, <laughs> you know, it's like you're writing all the benefits. And in addition to that, and in addition to that, and, <laughs> and I think I've heard you, you say that just, and is something that we really can get into a trap or it can cause issues. But I guess one thing I'd love for you to tell us now is I know this is geared towards the marketing person, but to me, this is communications. This is for leaders and owners and heavens, it'd be awesome if our politicians would get this a a little bit better. So talk a little bit about the audience for the book and the message that you're trying to get across. This is a book that would live on the marketing shelf of a bookstore that would sit next to other marketing books of the library. But I think you hit the nail on the head there, which is this is not something that is strictly limited to if you work in an advertising agency. This is something that if you're if your responsibilities in the world involve informing or persuading, you can be better at both of those by being simple, by getting to a message that resonates, that actually is built for how a receiver wants to understand it. So that applies to advocates and politicians, leaders and parents and and teachers and all these other roles, uh, just as much, if not more so than if somebody is a copywriter at an ad agency somewhere. I think back at people that have been elected whether you agree or disagree with what they say, let's take that off the table. They did have an ability to cut through a lot of noise and say what they wanted to say in a fairly succinct way. And I'm thinking about American presidents on both sides of the aisle. Bill Clinton could really get a message across, you know, Obama, Donald Trump, hate him or whatever, but he speaks to the people in a simple way. And anyway, I'm not saying we can learn from any of that. That's not my message here. But I think to be able to communicate in those ways are, mm-hmm. are, are important. What are some, now, one of the things I really loved is that you talk not just, this is not just about words, but it's also about design. And the reason that speaks to me is because I tell my wife all the time that I read Times New Roman. And that's my font. In fact, I, I joke, it's Tim's New Roman. And if you start doing a lot of fonts that have a lot of curly cues and stuff like that, I I sometimes, I literally can't read it. So this is not just about words, correct? This is like the whole design and messaging. Yeah. And there there's, so the entire, the entire book, I, I put the word design in the subtitle very intentionally. Because even though it's not about visual design for most of what the principles are here, uh, I argue that design is not just that. Design is about arranging things in the world to achieve a goal. And that can be words as part of that. And so it's about how do you design your messaging uh, with intentionality? Because it, it's design is an art, it's business. There's art that infiltrates it and informs it. It is fundamentally a business function. It's about arranging things to achieve a goal, to solve a problem. And that's how I look at the different principles here about, about how we can bridge that gap I talked about before. One of them, which, which I, is visual design though. So there's a number of user experience studies that uh, you can look at uh, for across the span of decades that show that we don't read on a screen remotely the same 
in the way that we read when we're looking at like a book. We don't start in the top left corner and move down to the bottom right. That's the dream. Everybody who's made a website or made an, written an email thinks that's what people are doing. But in reality, what people do is they start at the headline, they go to the next headline, they go jump around a little bit, they go to something else, they go to bullets, they go to boxes, they go to italics, they go to pull quotes, they go to buttons. And they, we do what's known as a layer cake pattern. Looks like the letter F, right? We go and we go up and down and we read the different pieces until we find what's relevant to us, what we're looking for. And then we go into it. And we augment that a lot of times also with like a search strategy. So if we're looking for a phone number or a name or an address, something that's shaped differently, we're going to hunt around for that. And so the lesson there is when you're designing the physical or the visual layout of your messaging, well, make use of that understanding. Use headlines, use bullets, use italics, use bold, use call-out boxes. Make it look like a really great magazine, more so than a giant essay. And we would do this in our own work, in our proposals. Our goal of our proposals was to look like a magazine because we wanted it to be something that was easy to read and understand and that stood out in a pile of other things that were just top to bottom times New Roman instead of using those headlines and everything else that make what you're saying, more, more easily understood by our eyes and then more easily understood by our brains. I like the example of the magazine. You know, it's interesting. It's been so long since I've seen or held a magazine. I was going to the airport a while back, went through the little bookstore and I picked up two magazines and read those on the plane. And there was such a comfort <laughs> about it right. then it felt well it was inviting the ads are there the information's there it was i think it was fast company or some business type thing that i used to read all the time and now i just go grab it digitally that that was nice what about and just we've got a few minutes left here and the thing i'm going to highly recommend is people get the book because i'm looking at the index and i'm going this has a lot of great info in it and i love just the i love the fluency of it i think we need to be able to speak the language of simplicity. I think that's one of the things I'm hearing you say, but I'd love for you, and I'm sure there's probably examples in the book. What are some examples that you can share, either good or bad, that everybody will go, oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know that. Oh, yeah, that's good. Any examples pop into your mind that you can share in the last few minutes that we have here? Oh, yeah, certainly. So what, if there's any regret I have in the book, by the way, it's I leaned a little bit too much into the like taglines and slogans in the first bit of the book, because that's a quick way to understand it. But this is so much more uh, valuable for the higher frequency communications like emails and presentations, and those type of things. That being said, I'll give you a couple of things that, that have always uh, resonated with me. So one of the things I talk about is benefits. And this is sales 101, features versus benefits. We don't buy features, we buy benefits. We don't want the thing, we want what the thing does for us. So the best example of this is if you go back about 20 years, Apple introduced the iPod. And they didn't go around saying it's got this many gigabytes of space, this many pixels on the screen, this much processing power. What they did was they said, it's a thousand songs in your pocket. Right? It's a thousand songs in your pocket. Immediately you understand the benefit. I don't care about the four gigabyte hard drive. I care about there being a thousand songs in my pocket. That's the feed, that's the benefit, not the feature. Eventually, you get down to the details somewhere on their website or their packaging, they'll tell you about the features. But it's about investing proportionally in, in, in what level of benefit is going to resonate in that market. And so that's a great example of that. 
And I'll give you something else that is completely different. I have, I've had bad luck with my teeth and I blame my genetics for it. And so I'm at the dentist one day and he's digging in there doing all sorts of terrible things. And the, he says, you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And I was like, oh, you got me. You got, that is exactly where I need, what I need to hear, when I need to hear it. And exactly in the language, which makes sense to me, it exhibits this degree of empathy, which is one of the other principles about, okay, you're speaking the language. You're meeting me where I am. And since that day, I've flossed every single night, right? Like it's so, it, it works in a way that saying something like you should floss to prevent plaque buildup below the gum line. That's correct. But that's not what I needed to hear. What I needed to hear was you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And all of a sudden that, that connects on a way that dozens of other similar admonitions before have not done so. Yeah, those are, those good messages I think are good and they stay with us sayings and things like that. The book is simply put why clear messages win and how to design them. Ben, why don't you tell us where they could find it and how to connect with you. And then I've got one more question before we finish up here. Oh yeah. Thank you, Tim. It's been a blast. Yeah. You can, if you go to bengutman.com, two T's and two N's, uh, you can find all sorts of information about the book. You can download a free chapter. You can connect with me. You can listen to other podcasts. And um, if you go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold, you can grab a copy. If you enjoy it, leave a review. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Or shoot me an email, connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to, if there's something that resonated, if there's something I can do to help, if you have a question, I'm all, all ears. Thanks, man. We'll include links so people can uh, get that. I love the cover. We've recently added some colors here that are that kind of like that gold and stuff like that. So really cool, simple, good font, by the way, good design cover. I really appreciate that. Ben, we're seek, go create those three words. Last question. I'm going to let you pick one of those over the other two. I'm going to give you one choice. Seek, go, or create. Which one do you choose and why? Oh, I, I have to say create. I think that my background is in design, which I, you probably may have picked up at some point in this conversation. And I think that I'm grateful that I have done that in my career, that I have some sort of natural aptitude for that because the ability to create something out in the world is such a magical experience and it makes you aware of all the possibilities that there are when you, when you realize the world is more malleable and you think everything that's there was made by somebody and with some inspiration and some work and some creativity and, and it makes you want to join that grand project of creating things. So I'm going to go create. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate you being a guest here. The book is simply put why clear messages win and how to design them. I just recommend you get it. Just get the book. And one of the things I really loved was kind of like the premise, which is the fluency of my words, just the message of being simple. We're Seek, Go, Create here. Thanks for joining us. We've got new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. Mm -hmm.